Hey, Kira, it's time for a call and response. You ready? Be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes! That's right. This week we're talking about one of my favorite films of all time. I must have watched this on VHS 30 times. Bill and Ted's motherfucking excellent adventure. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Kier Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who last week got to meet Juice Crew, and I just have to say, Big Daddy Kane is seriously still one of the coolest motherfuckers ever. Humble brown. <laughs> and I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., 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 and I don't even know who Juice Crew are. Well, that's because you're an ill-educated man who does not know about the finer things in life. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know what? I tell you what. Just Google, when we're done with the podcast, type in Juice Crew, The Symphony, and you'll see exactly what I mean. This week, uh, in review, we have Murder on the Orient Express and Paddington 2. In trending topic, we are going to be discussing just why famous men can't keep their dicks in their pants. And finally, in our main topic, is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. This week, the review system is, how far would a train powered by this movie get? There you go. Okay, so Murder on the Orient Express, based off a very famous Agatha Christie novel of the same name. It's the winter of 1934, and Hercule Poirot, the world's greatest detective, boards the Orient Express, which is filled with colorful characters played by a pretty impressive cast. Then a murder happens, and Poirot must... Sniff out the killer. Turns out it's only one of the most famous and well-known endings of a mystery novel ever. So, do you know the, do you know the ending to Murder on the Orient Express? I, I don't. See, I was surprised. I kind of thought everybody knew it. I, it's just like, it's one no. of those ones that I just kind of thought was like known. Uh, There's a really famous adaptation by Sidney Lumet in 1974 where Albert Finney plays Poirot. Um, it's got like Sean Connery, Anthony Perkins, Lauren Bacall. It's a very star-studded cast. Um, and it's, um, Sidney Lumet was always kind of a very unfussy director. And, uh, I think, safe to say, Kenneth Branagh has gone, who directs and stars in this, has gone the complete opposite direction. Like, this film is green screen to fuck. It is trying to make it look as expensive and opulent as possible. And it is doing everything it can to try and, like, be busy up, like, the, 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 the visuals of a train. It's like Kenneth Branagh started making the film and went, oh, fuck, this thing's sat on a train. Uh, hmm. What can we do to make it interesting? <laughs> um, so, uh, and, you know, and, and I, I think this film allows Kenneth Branagh to study his favorite subject in loving detail, which is himself and just how wonderful he thinks he is um so there's lots of loving close-ups of kenneth Branagh and a ridiculous mustache like really acting like he is he 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 really wants to capture just how much he's acting at you um and i mean at at you at you you're getting acted (laughs) at um and outside of that i mean i mean it's a star-studded cast not many of them have much to do i mean i will say 
it's probably some of the best Johnny Depp's been in a while. Um, okay, so who, who's in it? Johnny Depp, Judy Dench, Willem Dafoe, Josh Gad, Derek Jacobi, Michelle Pfeiffer, mm. Daisy Ridley, uh, Penelope Cruz, who is like in it, but like kind of not. Like she's there, and you, but you, it's like when my mother saw it, she was like, which one was Penelope Cruz? Because she makes that little an impact. Um, and yeah, it's kind of. I suppose murder on the Orient Express. It's like, it was interesting. I had a very long conversation with my mother afterwards, who's read a lot of mystery novels. She's very into the genre and uh, knows far more about Agatha Christie than I do. Um, And uh, she kind of, she, her sort of opinion on Agatha Christie has always been that she's not a very good writer. She's, she's a decent plotter, but she's not a very good writer. And hmm. you can tell in the sense that all the characters are essentially archetypes, you know, and that's, it sort of sets all of these archetypes up and, you know, it's like Agatha Christie, of course, is basically this, the originator of like things like Clue, where, you know, it's like the joke, you know, it's it, like something like Clue is almost a joke on an Agatha Christie novel, you know, you have the <laughs> colonel and the gardener and, the, you know, they're all like, they've got one defined jog, job occupation right. that kind of defines everything about them. And then then the brilliant detective calls them into the accusing parlor and you know and it's like um you know y- y- it wouldn't have looked out of place for kenneth Branagh to be like it was colonel mustard in the train compartment with the candlestick you know it's <laughs> and so it's all very silly and what kenneth Branagh essentially tries to do is kind of steer into that and have some level of kind of camp and sort of high drama about it all but it just never really settles into anything particularly interesting i have to say and i think all of its attempts to kind of make it more dynamic and exciting and modern actually just further prove the weakness of the story and you know and it's one of those twist endings that you're kind of like on the face of it, you're like, oh, that's kind of clever. And then when you actually think about it, you're like, that makes literally no sense whatsoever. You know, it, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, which I think is probably the way most Agatha Christie novels work. The only one I've ever read was uh, the one And There Were None, which used to be called um, Ten Little Indians. And then before that was called Ten Little N-Words, um, with, the, with it huh? being the actual word, not the N-Word. But it was the 30s. It was, was it okay really? to use the N-Word in book titles. <laughs> Jeez, apparently. Um, but yeah, and I, that's another one that has this kind of twist that actually makes zero to no sense and, you know, would be incredibly stupid if you saw it in an indie film now, but, you know, in a book in the 30s was clever. So I, hmm. I don't know. I, I thought this film was kind of bad because you had to sit through the ego trip that is Kenneth Branagh, you know, and this is, I feel like it's not quite the levels of Kenneth Branagh lovingly filming himself with a shirt, with his shirt off in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but it's not, not getting towards that area of things. Huh. So it, it is a little bit distracting. Yeah. And also it's, it's obnoxious the way it tries to set up a franchise. Like, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, at the, the, at the end of it, it's like, oh, Poirot, there's trouble on the Nile. And then, you know, it's almost like Kenneth Branagh might as well wink at the audience and be like, ah, see you again soon. Does that character recur in Christie's novels? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a very famous set of BBC adaptations with um, David Suchet playing Poirot. And he's Uh kind of beloved as Poirot. I mean, if you think about the way, like, say, I don't know, people feel about, say, Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock Holmes, like, David Suchet is, like, 
a hundred times more beloved than that as Poirot. Oh, wow. Like, he is the okay. Poirot to most people. And, you know, and especially, I, I mean, I think it's one of those things that... It was interesting, too, because we went there, and I'm not the only person who said this. Uh, when we went to the cinema, like, pretty much the entire cinema was filled with um, middle-aged to higher, you know, sort of level people. There was almost nobody there in their 20s. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and that's kind of also the same people who watched Poirot on TV, uh, played by David Suchet. Then they fucking better hurry up with this franchise, because they're not going to be around too <laughs> well, long. And, and, and my mother, they're, took my grandmother losing to it, my audience. grandmother who's in her late <laughs> 80s, so it's... <laughs> Yeah, they they are losing their audience. Oh yeah, um, but yeah, like I don't know. It was I was kind of disappointed. I thought this might be fun. It and it just wasn't. It was okay. Yeah. So how far uh, of a train ride would it be? I don't Off know, man. <laughs> I mean, if this thing's starting in Istanbul, it's not making it to Italy or anything. I think I think it's <laughs> it's maybe gonna get into like Eastern Europe and like not really much beyond that. Okay. All right. All right. So what's next? I know that you don't even really care about talking about this film because you just want to talk about Paddington. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I went to see Paddington 2 on my birthday. How many times have you seen Paddington 2, by the way? Paddington 2? I've only seen Paddington 2 once. I've seen – I saw the first Paddington twice in the cinema. Um, How many times have you seen it from home? I think I've seen it at least one other time from home. I've only seen it like three times. I've not seen it like – but it did only come out like two years ago. Um, right. And I don't rewatch films as excessively as I used to. Um, so right, okay. Paddington is still living in London with the Browns, and he's settled into a nice routine and is beloved by the Browns' neighbors and the overall community. However, he misses his Aunt Lucy in deepest, darkest Peru, who is about to celebrate her 100th birthday at the home for retired bears. And knowing that one of his aunt's dreams was to come to London one day, Paddington stumbles across a beautifully illustrated pop-up book of London and resolves to get a job to earn the money to buy that pop-up book. However, there is more to this pop-up book that he realizes. And when it is stolen by a mysterious thief, Paddington is framed for the crime and sent to prison. However, Paddington, yeah, ever the optimist, uh, resolves (laughs) to clear his name get his Aunt Lucy a birthday present, and supply the prison with a healthy dose of marmalade sandwiches. Eh. <laughs> okay. So, Austin, what do you think that I think about this movie? What can you imagine that I think about this movie? Rays of sunshine are shining through every orifice right now, so all I can see is just pure joy and ecstasy. This is, like, one of the most beautifully earnest films which manages to toe this incredible line between being um not really having a cynical bone in its body but also not ever flipping over into treacly disgusting syrupy stuff it is a film that i feel that is so perfectly british in the way that it it, it, it works, <laughs> that it is like it, it is just this beautiful ray of sunshine that also comes with uh, enough of a storm cloud that it's not going to give you sunburn. You know, it is. Um, who makes this these films? Um, a guy called Paul King. Um, is this kind of like are these his his only? Two films. Well, no, he, or he previously made is a there film. A, is there a studio behind well, it? Well, he'd previously made a film called uh, The Bunny and the Bull, 
and which I've actually never seen. But before that, he was one of the main creatives on uh, the Mighty Boosh, which I don't know. Did you ever watch the Mighty uh, Boosh? I didn't, but I know of it. Um, yeah. Well, it was it's a it was a big sort of cult phenomenon in yeah in Britain. Um, as yeah, yeah. full of very surreal sort of wacky odd stuff. But he okay. is, I think, the ace in the hole here because he just so perfectly constructs this film. And I, I swear to God, it, it is almost like a kind of Wes Anderson light vibe to it. Like this, these huh. are incredibly well-directed films. Like Paddington could have so easily been a cheap, shitty cash-in, and that is not what it is. I mean, you have uh, David Heyman as the producer who was behind Harry oh, Potter. Yeah. And he is someone who, again, I think he is someone who cares about the material and is making sure that it's treated right rather than just sort of like them trying to cash in on the name recognition of it. And there are sequences in this that perfectly pay homage to great physical comedy sequences. You know, uh, the great physical comedy actors like uh, Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin is even a direct modern times reference in the film. And I have to say the whole prison sequence is so reminiscent of Grand Budapest Hotel. I would almost wonder if Wes Anderson would watch this film and feel he was slightly ripped off. Um, But I mean, and I mean, Ben Wishaw as Paddington is just the most perfect piece of voice casting you could possibly imagine. (laughs) And, And I thought they did a great job, too, of actually having a story in it and having having a really really well constructed film and this is like for for people like me who are kind of geeks of structure and love like love a certain amount of structure in film and uh, and in scripts like this is a film that so beautifully sets everything up and pays it off exquisitely you know without it feeling forced or try hard you know it is a i i feel like in many ways it is the example of how you should write a great script. You know, it, everything is so perfectly designed. And and it's clear they put it out on my birthday because they knew <laughs> we need to give Kira a present this year. And this is what this is what it was. Paddington 2 was my present. And I will say, too, actually, Hugh Grant is great in it. But. So is, like, the entire cast. Like, Hugh Grant it has a kind of, like, a bit of a, a showy role in the fact that he's essentially he's essentially playing the villain who is a sort of self-involved actor who's kind of past his time and uh, loves dressing up in different costumes from his, the heyday of his great performances. Um Oh, that's fine. And uh, now, wait is is the whole thing animated or is it kind of oh, like no, part no, no. animated? It's, it's live action, and the only the only animated element is uh, Paddington, who's CGI. Oh, so it's like Ted. It it is like Ted, but with more but wonder not. and whimsy and <laughs> less okay. R-rated humor. Here's, here's my here's my question. What about for someone who's cynical? You know, um, like because you can be a cynic sometimes, and you know I can be a cynic sometimes. So what about someone who's just hard, like? who maybe doesn't have the sentimentality or the, the sentimental bone or that isn't in touch with his or her feelings. I will say... Will they be able to kind of be broken down in a positive way by this I film? I will say I don't think this film has cheap sentimentality. I don't think okay. it's cheap or forced in the way that it goes about it. So I feel like it's a hard film to read cynically. And actually, one of the beautiful things, and interestingly, I would say is not dissimilar from Bill and Ted is that there's no is that there are characters that are so completely devoid of malice 
that they are just these yeah. beautifully earnest characters, <laughs> that there's a sort yeah. of way that they infect the world around them with this sort right. of earnest quality that's just really lovable. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, it, it, and that is the thing, is like Paddington's almost, uh, it, the, almost the setup of Paddington is Paddington constantly being confronted by these situations that should bring about some sort of cyn- uh, cynicism, but because he is so earnestly believes in in the good in everyone his assumption is always that people are good and so he never sees that people are mean or bad or wrong he just assumes everyone is a good person (laughs) and it's like and it's so fascinating the way it ends up then infecting the world around him and i suppose you could be a cynical person and say that that's not realistic but that's the beauty of it that's the thing that's Mm. so wonderful i swear to god man i got misty-eyed at the end of this film like it is like it is a beautiful film not only in its sort of perfectly placed sentimentality but also in its construction and its execution and it's so easy for people to be snooty about it because it's a kid's film about a talking bear but i swear to god this is one of the best made films of the year it's it's so beautifully made and i think and i I, you know we've said this before i hate the fact that i think that there's an inherent snootiness that comes with genres and subject you know and i guarantee you that out of the films that end up getting nominated for best picture this year there paddington 2 will be better than a lot of those films all right so how how far of a train ride does this man this thing could like i I don't (laughs) care it could cross oceans it can do whatever the fuck it wants it can like it's gonna if it's leaving from istanbul motherfuckers coming back to istanbul in the opposite direction (laughs) all right that's how fucking good this movie is no no seriously no jokes right now on my letterbox it's number two are you gonna see i love you daddy i am not gonna go see i love you daddy which is a perfect segue. You like how I did that? You yeah. like how I did so, that? So, guys, join us on the other side of the uh, of the little music cue. All right. So, Austin perfectly alluded to what our topic this week is, which is happy fun stuff. So, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Ed Westwick, Louis C.K., Brian Singer, Brett Ratner, Charlie Sheen, James Toback, Jeremy Piven... A lot of fucking men in Hollywood have been accused of sexual assault, harassment, oh, and, and misconduct. And, and, and John Travolta's news came out today. Oh, and John Travolta, yeah. John Travolta's news just came out as well. Though, I had heard that before. I feel like that yeah. was an old well, story. Listen, I think we heard about most of this before. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll get into this in a second. But yeah. I guess, you know, I guess the question is, Austin, is – um, so – I, I'm, and, you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because obviously you've been around Hollywood, you know, a yeah. fair amount. You, I think you've probably more than most people, you know, most people who live outside of L.A., you've probably heard a lot of these stories. Like, you know, yeah. we made reference on a previous podcast the fact that I'd heard a lot of Kevin Spacey stories. And one of the reasons I'd heard a lot of Kevin Spacey stories was because of his connection to the old Vic and the fact that he is in London a lot. So. Yeah. I mean, and I think proximity and proximity to the industry often means that you end up hearing a lot of this insider information. The true, same was true with, say, Brian Singer, because, again, Brian Singer ended up working out at Pinewood an awful lot. Right. So I suppose the question is, why now? And are we having a cultural moment and why? Mm. I mean, why now? Partly because of the cultural moment 
where uh, I think victims are feeling more confident and comfortable to come forward because they have the support of a greater public. So you're seeing this not just with them. Obviously, you saw this with Bill O'Reilly, the accusations against him, the accusations against Trump during the election. Um, you're seeing this more often that powerful men are being outed publicly. Part of it is for publicity's sake because we live in a climate where people are constantly trying to um, – Everything is public, and so people are constantly trying to put things into the 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 sphere of publicity, so to speak. Um, and then I think the other part of it is really just because there are so many advocates that people feel confident that women who or men who have been abused, who have been victimized, I think there's a sense uh, of confidence that 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 sort of has emboldened them and allowed them to kind of come forward now more than more than previous years. Like now there's an issue and this isn't in Hollywood, but there's an issue with uh, a, a guy that's running for Senate in the United States named Roy Moore, who has recently been accused of some shady activity with underage women. And a lot of people on the right who are supportive of Roy Moore are doubling down on their support for him. And they're saying, well, why now? This guy's run for governor in the past. He's been a judge in the past, a federal judge. And these accusations didn't come forward. Why now? And I think part of the reason why it didn't happened previously was, again, because the cultural climate wasn't as supportive to victims, whereas now not only is there support for victims, but it's almost becoming more encouraged to take the strength, to take the power, and to fucking speak out. And also, it's a lot easier when you have other people doing it. So the reason you're seeing this sort of dominoes falling is because if you're the seventh or eighth down the line, uh, after the first or second gets the ball rolling, it becomes a lot easier to realize, hey, I have support here. Other people are in this same boat. And it really does allow you to feel like you can speak forth. And so I think that's really the kind of primary reason why this is happening. It's it's interesting too though because, you know, you're talking about like Roy Moore, but I was, I was actually thinking – and the why now thing. But I was – I was actually thinking about the Bill Cosby thing because obviously you mm. had this incredibly mm. disturbing set of stories yeah, that, and women that coming was the spark. forward that and was the spark, a couple I think. years ago. Yeah. And, you know, the dam didn't really break after that. It was like it's it's been, you know, because, I mean, the Bill Cosby scandal kind of came to light about, you know, a good couple of years ago at this point. So yeah. it's like well, you have you have Cosby. Then you've got Roger Ailes from Fox News. Then you've got Bill O'Reilly from Fox News. Was that before um, Trump with the with the pussy oh yeah, grabber? Thing? No, Trump was even before that. So yeah, so you've got Cosby, you got Trump, you got Roger Ailes, you got Bill O'Reilly. Then of course you've got the Clinton stuff, Bill Clinton. That all when Trump was when his accusers were coming forward, then they kind of drudged up the Clinton accusers, and so you have this idea. But the, in the past, nothing was done because there was really no recourse. Like, what do you do? Uh, like, how do you publicly shame? How do you publicly publicly punish? How do you get justice? And we're still working through that. I, I'm not sure that we really have the appropriate means to actually achieve true justice, but at least there's a sense in which the spark has been lit and it's lit a fire and other people are following suit because I think people are now realizing that there is a way to to achieve some sort of – I don't even know if it's, it's justice with a small j, but to achieve something – Right, some sort of venting, some sort of public um, uh, expression, and then at the same time, that's leading to some semblance of a street justice or a mob justice or something. I, I'm not sure if it's a, a capital J justice yet. I think people were working towards that, but at the very least, I think people are seeing that oh, something is done. People are being fired. Um, people's awareness is being raised. People are being blackballed, etc. So at least people are realizing now that there is a 
punishment that uh, that 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 results from these um, crimes. Well, it's interesting too because you also see that ripple happening. In not just the communities of sort of, you know, of the celebrities, directors, actors, and all that, but it's actually, it's happened in the film critic community as well. Because you have, say, prominent figures like Devin Faraci and um, uh, the guy who the guy who made Honest Trailers, whose name I've forgotten, um, Andy Signor, who um, was one of the creators of Screen Junkies, creators of Honest Trailers, um, mm-hmm. and then also... Um, Fuck, what's his name? The guy who um, who ran Ain't It Cool News. Like, um, I don't know. You know, again, they've all kind of been ousted for um, past sexual misconduct as well. So it's it's something that's also had ripples outside of just like the celebrity world as well. Um, but here's here's the thing that I was I was interested in as well. Is there a potential that we are putting everybody into one category? Because okay, so you look at say. Harvey Weinstein, who seems to be just who I mean, I I feel like we all kind of knew was probably a piece of shit. Like there's 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 an element to his character and his reputation, which was always that he seemed like he was a very difficult human being and not a very nice person. And so, I mean, my thing was it never shocked me to find out this about Harvey Weinstein. Um, and then you look at someone like Kevin Spacey, who, again, is someone that I've heard stories about for years and years and years. And, you know, and I, I didn't really want to say them publicly because, you know, they weren't my stories to tell. Like, it it's right. it feels weird. I mean, what, what am I going to do? Start banging on about, you know, third hand stories that somebody else has told me, you know, I and mean, a lot of times I'm hearing stories about something that happened to somebody, somebody new, not, you know, things that happened directly to them. And but he just he had he had acquired this reputation. And it's one of those things where you hear enough people say it and you kind of well, you kind of believe that it must be true because there's no smoke without fire. But at the same time. So, you know, I read a story on, say, George Takai and George Takai is getting accused of having groped someone inappropriately back in the 80s. And you're like and and I think there's an interesting element to which there's an important point to which we dissect what is appropriate behavior and what is powerful people taking advantage. But I also think, are those two crimes really equivalent? Are, is it, are, are we really putting George Takai in with the same level of, say, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, who are serial abusers? You know, I mean, is, is, is there not an element to which we are creating an umbrella with which all of these people are put under it, are put in the same category? Like, again, say, yeah. take someone like jo- James Tobeck, who's had something like 200 accusations against him. And you're kind of like, yeah, that guy's a piece of shit, at which point, you know, again, I'm, I'm and then you, you sort of put, say, someone like Ben Affleck, who's, you know, grope somebody inappropriately once you know it's I don't know, it starts to seem a little bit weird yeah i mean i think then what what people would wonder is if they groped somebody once what about all the untold stories no, that's was a very this, good point and that's what we don't know you and know? actually so the, the thing that was very... so it's hard to make a judgment either mm. way when there is a, a lack of certainty on on this but i do agree with you there is a danger in trying to say that any sort of unwanted advance is somehow uh, an equivalent infringement, but this is uh, this this is a problem that we need to work through. We, well, and this we is also it's, it's a dangerous this. road to go down as well, because for instance, too, I've certain certain people try to use that as a way to excuse Louis C.K.'s 
you know, offenses. Which, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, but taking out your dick in front of someone who doesn't want to see it and forcing them to watch you masturbate is still assault. It doesn't matter if you touch them or not. It is, you know, that's a form of assault. So it's like, I've seen people try, try to sort of excuse Louis C.K.'s behavior by saying, oh, well, he didn't touch them or he didn't right. hurt them. But I'm like, that's still that's still fucked up to do. That doesn't, you don't get right. away with it just because you didn't hurt somebody. Like, yeah, not, exactly. I mean, in a physical sense. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And this is why, I mean, to be completely honest, we're unprepared to deal with the the onslaught and the flood of the variations of infringements that are being reported because they do vary from, okay, so Takai groped somebody in the 80s. If that was literally the only time that he ever inappropriately touched somebody or the only time that somebody felt victimized from his touching somebody, which is another issue too, and let's just be real here, a gay man in the 80s probably was in some pretty interesting situations where some hands were flying and stuff like that, you know? So... Uh, maybe, maybe the, maybe one person felt uncomfortable, maybe 20 felt uncomfortable, but the other 19 haven't come forward. I don't know. So the question is, is how do we deal with Takai's situation and how does that differ from say on the other end, uh, with someone who's just a piece of shit like Harvey Weinstein, who has bullied women, who has potentially raped women, um, who has clearly, it seems, established a pattern of using his power to intimidate and to, to, um, take the willpower from in order to exert his sort of sexual desire. Those seem to be different. Um, they're differences of degree, not differences of kind. So the question is, how do we deal with them? Is publicly shaming these people to try to tarnish their reputation, their career, to make it seem like they're the scum of the earth, that George Takai is a bad guy uh, in the same way that Toback and that Brian Singer? Like, is that the right language? And I think that there's a problem, and we're working through it. I don't know what the solution is. I just know that this is – it's fucking hard as shit, and more than anything, what needs to happen is people do need to feel emboldened. People do need to feel comfortable to be able to come forward because they will be supported – and men and women um, in, in the sort of minority, but men uh, who have participated in this type of activity, whether you think you're on the George Takai spectrum, as at least as we're articulating it, we don't know, but let's just say he's on the sort of, sort of more uh, less egregious end of the spectrum, whether you're on the George Takai end of the spectrum or whether you're on the Harvey Weinstein spectrum, if you're in there somewhere and you have done anything that has violated a person or made that person feel intimidated or uncomfortable or you have somehow imposed your will upon them, then there's a sense in which we all need to kind of reckon with this. So people need to feel comfortable to be able to express themselves and men need to feel comfortable to be able to examine themselves to be like, fuck, man, maybe there is something wrong with the way that we have uh, viewed women's bodies, the way that we have viewed uh, the, the, the object's body that is other than me because it could be a man as well in, in, like a, in, in a gay experience. So there's a lot going on and I just don't think we're equipped to really fully have the answers and so that's why I think you just see this massive clusterfuck over social media right now. I suppose the thing that I wonder about and say like something like the George Takai set of circumstances and of course like I'm using him in this example but for instance, for all we know – we are just on the cusp of like a thousand young men coming forward to accuse George Takai of uh, right. misconduct. Like, so I'm not even trying to let George Takai off the hook. I'm just merely saying, as of this recording, this is the circumstance of what right, I'm right. saying. Right, right. We don't know but, exactly. I mean, there's a simple, there's a little bit of an element too to me. Is okay. So you're talking about this misconduct that happened like 30 years ago. Okay, we are all at some point in our life 
guilty of some form of misconduct. Now, I'm not saying sexual misconduct, but we are all we've at some point hurt somebody. We've at some point pissed somebody off. We've at some point acted badly. No human being is safe from that. Every human right. being has done that in some form or another. Absolutely. And so, I mean, there's an element, too, to which I kind of think if you are consistent in that behavior, if you don't learn from it, then that makes you a bad person. But I mean, again, like again, and this is this is this is just drawing off of the examples that are given. Uh, you know, you look at the case of Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman again, he's being accused of having acted inappropriately by two women, like over thirty years ago. You're you're kind of like I, it doesn't feel the same as say like when I'm looking at Brett Ratner and I'm like you feel like you're a piece of shit. Like it's like, and you know, everything that people say makes you sound like you're a piece of shit and you're yeah. a fucking terrible filmmaker to boot as well. So it's like, but I mean, you know, you listen to the story that Natasha Henstridge told about Brett Ratner and you're like, that is like some cruel, mean spirited, evil shit. Or like the way he, uh, dealt with the whole sort of, uh, the, the Olivia Munn thing. Like you're, you yeah. know, he, He's not a good person. It's very clear he's not a good person. You know, so it's, you know, again, there's there's degrees to that. You know, yeah. and I just, I... That, but, that, this is precisely what I mean. It's very difficult to talk about. Yeah. It's very difficult to, to figure out what to do. We don't really have a barometer to measure yeah. if Dustin Hoffman has become a quote-unquote decent person. Like, like, we need to also be careful with making such final statements oh, as yeah, good yeah, person yeah. versus bad person, right? So... Let's say, has the habit of Dustin Hoffman's life, has it turned? Has he been a serial uh, abuser, intimidator, you know, a, a, a sort of violator of people's comfort? Has he done that constantly? If so, then how do we, how do we approach that? How do we deal with that? And unfortunately, the way that the discourse is taking place right now is not sufficient. I'm not saying it's all bad, but it's not sufficient. And I think that it's going to be really interesting to see how this develops over the years as people, as, as women and victims across the board, women and men, become more emboldened to be able to speak out. And then we figure out how can we quote unquote prosecute, not always in a legal court, but how do we in the court of public opinion, maybe in the court of professionalism or in the court of jurisprudence, how do we quote unquote prosecute such activity and i don't fucking have the answer man i think the thing that i found kind of a little bit disturbing when i thought back on it though was when i looked at the people on the list um very few surprised me like i think oh, you none know, of it surprises me yeah yeah but i mean as in like it there was almost nobody there who i was kind of like oh but i thought they would be a good guy you know i mean maybe louis ck because he bangs on like part of his whole persona was being very pro-women, being a kind of like male feminist type, you know. So, I, I I mean, I found maybe that was the closest I came to being surprised. But I mean, like, Jeremy Piven, I always kind of heard he was an asshole. Uh, Kevin Spacey, obviously. Harvey Weinstein, Brett Ratner, Charlie Sheen, these are all people who I kind of already thought were probably assholes. You know? Well, so and like, I think, so there's two problems here. Uh, first is obviously... If you're involved in the industry to any extent or to, to any degree, the rumors are there. And you don't just hear them from one source. You hear them from hundreds of sources. You hear them from every source. And That's you know, what everyone said too about Bill Cosby. They said, you know, this was like – people talked about this for years and years oh, and yeah. years. Like this was not well, you know like, how Well, you know how it became famous, right? Because well, of Hannibal Burris. Right. So he just – he was saying Google it. 
And like literally, the accusations were going to come up. So he it's just not literally like it said it hidden. in a show. It wasn't even like a special. It was like somebody was like recording yeah. his show, and he just goes, "You know, shut up, Bill Cosby. You're a rapist." He's like, "Yeah." That was funny what I said about Bill Cosby being a rapist, but you know, it's true. He's, yeah, he's like, you seriously, know. just Google Bill Cosby rape accusations, and you'll see like a thousand. And it's right. It, that, that's right. So the point it's is, interesting is that even you, to hear Hannibal Burris because Joe Rogan interviewed him and he was kind of saying like, what did you what was like the aftermath of this? And he was like, he was like, this was just something I, you know, pointed out during a show. Like this wasn't like <laughs> I wasn't a crusader or anything right. like that. But like th- I couldn't get away from this for like right. six months. This was like as like I was trying to put on a, I had like a TV show that I was trying to make. I had a thousand things that I wanted to publicize. And the last thing I wanted to do was talk about like try, try to be like the voice of some campaign against Bill Cosby. Yeah, I know. I know. And so and so the point is, is obviously the rumor mill, um, the stories have been around forever. And then the other problem is uh, the other the other element, I guess, is, is that there is a problem in Hollywood. Um, obviously, there's an abuse of power and the sort of sexual assault activities are an expression of that that imbalance of power and that abuse of power. But one of the things that that, that is really problematic is that it's acceptable in Hollywood to use your body and use your power to manipulate uh, younger, weaker, impressionable persons seeking to climb the ladder, uh, it's acceptable to use that power in order to get what you want. And, and it's just common across the board. I mean, I've experienced interesting situations where I've been placed in compromising positions by casting directors and suggestions by various other personnel that are higher up on the food chain than myself, especially when I was younger, when I was in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s. Um, and I know, and I'm the casting couch, Austin, is that what you're telling us? Listen, that's another story. Okay. We don't have to go down that road. No, no. Um, but, um, and, and then I'm a dude. You know, so for me, I can't even imagine how many cocks are flying at uh, women, you know, like if you're a beautiful girl from Omaha and you're like this prom queen, beauty queen, and you come like dudes are going to pounce on you because they're just fucking wolves. But that was that was the interesting thing, though, that too, though, was that some that I heard somebody pointing out the other day was they were like, you know, with the Harvey Weinstein case. The only thing we hear about is basically we're hearing from the women who said no. How many women said yes? Yeah, and that that's interesting. Not only that, but how many women are still silent too, right? Yeah. How many women are still silent because they're still benefiting? How many women said yes? I mean, there are rumors about famous women that are out there right now, some of the top actresses in the world I right wouldn't, now. I wouldn't, yeah, don't name anyone. I'm not going to name names. Yeah, I'm not going to name names, no, no, but that supposedly uh, have had interactions with him. Because I think so, I've, I've, I've seen some of those rumors as well. Yeah, um... And, and, you know, so the question is, is, is how many are out there? And so you have this weird fucking culture, you know? And then at the same time, there's also an interesting thing. You also have women who know what they have, and I dated one of them, who know what they have, and they use their sexuality to get what they want as well, which is an interesting thing as well. Um, the question is, though, is are they doing that from within the st- – the, the, the still paradigm where they're still selling their body in order to climb the ladder uh, and sleep with producers and things like that to get parts. Is that something that, um, that is an empowering thing that, oh, women are playing the game as well? Or is it that, no, they're 
they're subsuming themselves underneath this power dynamic that is still a masculine game. It's still the man's game, and they just think that they're empowered in it, but they're still just giving up their body to get the part. So they're still kind of they're still stuck within that that vacuum, if you will, that circular vacuum of of uh, of problematic problematic masculinity in Hollywood. I don't know, but it's a weird fucking thing, man. I will say this, dude. You actually, you and um, I think it was Doug uh, were talking on uh, on Facebook. And like weeks ago, before the Kevin Spacey thing came mm. out, and you guys were actually talking, you were like, wait for the Kevin Spacey news to break. And this was after Weinstein. Weinstein was the only mm. one. And you were like, I'll just wait for Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer. And then guess what? A couple weeks later, it happened. Similarly, a friend of mine um, around the same time, before the news had broke, a guy that he works in, he's working on a TV show right now in LA, he posted on Facebook, he said, wait till the news about Brian Singer and John Travolta breaks. And then it happened again. Here's my point. The point is, is that people know. Yeah. People people know. So the question is, is if you know, what the fuck can you do? You can't just start outing people based on rumors. Well, that's hopefully- the problem. Is like it's like I'm sitting. I you know it was weird. It was weird for me personally because I, literally, like I said, I've been hearing this Kevin Spacey shit for like a decade. Like yeah. it's just like. Everybody you fucking meet in London has a Kevin Spacey story. And the funny thing is, I didn't even say Kevin Spacey. What I said is there's a prominent actor who we all know who everybody – who I don't even have to say his name because everybody will know who he is. And I'm not going to say his name because it's not my place to deliver that because they're not my stories. That's right. And someone in the comments said it. Yeah. That's right. It's not my place to tell somebody else's stories. And it's like – and it's like – and that's the thing too is ultimately I think – I. I don't have the right to be coming out and accusing people if it's not something that actually happened to me. So it's like, so or, it or like, that I've witnessed. Yeah, That's I've the not thing witnessed that, it, so I can't I verify it. But it's like that thing of I've been hearing these stories for so long that I was hoping somebody would have the courage to come out and do that. And right. you know. And that's what's uh, important is yeah. we need to be able to create a support group so that people can feel encouraged to come out. Because uh, I've heard some weird shit about other people, right, that, that we don't need to go into right now and talk about. But how, how can I then um, – is it my job to run to the tabloids and start saying, hey, I heard from a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend who I was on set and I was working on this movie and she was a costume lady and she actually uh, – her friend was dating this guy and, and he did some weird shit. Like – is that my place? Fuck, man. I mean, that was like 12 years ago. I heard some weird shit. Uh, he's an actor that I love. I mean, I've heard some weird shit about guys, you know? So, and we, we, you know, and I, I don't mean, know. like, to compartmentalize that down, too, is how many times, too, have you had, like, a friendship group where something happens and then somebody says, oh, that was a bit fucking weird what, I don't know, Jim did or something like that. And you're right, kind of right. like, you, you're kind of like, oh, shit. Jim did that. And then say, you talk yeah. to Jim, you hear Jim's side of story, you're kind of like, Okay, that doesn't sound that weird. That just sounds like it was presented to me in a slightly off fashion. So it's like that thing where it's bad to it's you know you, that's why I think again you need people who these experiences have happened to to come forward and say it yeah. because rumors don't do anybody any good in terms of getting right. some sort of concrete justice. And it's hard cuz I mean, you know, even so, you take somebody like Anthony Rapp, you know, obviously this horrible thing happened to him when he was 14, but it's like, I mean, what justice is he really going to have beyond trying to be able to tell his story and be able to 
encourage other people to come out and tell their stories about Kevin Spacey's inappropriate behavior. And that's what happened. And you got like this huge wave of people who kind of said, yeah, this has been happening for a long fucking time and it needs to be fucking said. And, you know, and that was what made me happy. It was like almost like in a weird way, even though I've never met Kevin Spacey and nothing has ever personally happened to me. It just it felt like some sort of personal victory to me because it felt like finally I don't have to know that this shit is going on and nobody's doing anything about it because I can't do anything about it. So at least I know that something has happened. And it it felt weird. Like, I've for years always felt weird watching Kevin Spacey in movies. It's fucked, man. And I feel like this is one of those things that we're just we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. And I I feel like over the next couple of years, I mean, maybe it'll lose some steam. I I hope it doesn't to a degree. I just hope... uh, I hope people feel comfortable in coming forward, and and I hope we figure out a way to actually appropriately adjudicate this situation. But it's a fucking mess, man. Well, do you know, it is a fucking mess. Do you know who would never abuse their power? Uh, Ted Theodore Logan and Bill S. Preston Esquire. Segway! Now, a motion picture so grand, so magnificent, and so vast, it spans 7,000 years. No way! Yes way! But it starts with Bill. I'm Bill S. Preston. Who was Joan of Arc? And Ted. Noah's wife? We are in danger of flunking most heinously tomorrow. A force from the future. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? You can do anything you want. Is putting history at their fingertips. Let's reach out and touch someone. They're traveling through time. How's it going, royal ugly dudes? Put them in the Iron Maiden. Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. And they're making a big impression. Historical babes. Now they're home. Everybody get together, remember who your buddy is. To trash the 20th century. We got a live one here. All right, so this week in our main topic, we are going to be completely switching gears and shake off the grossness and the negativity from our trending topic. Shake it out, also Keir. Like, also, like, let's point it out. Like, nobody's accused Keanu Reeves of sexual abuse, and dude, he seems like a cool guy. Dude, everybody says that he's just like the most amazing dude. Um, I was watching an interview with Alex Winter, who plays Bill in this movie, and apparently they're friends, and he's like, he's just the same guy that you see, you know? And then mm-hmm. my old boss actually was was buddies with Keanu, and he said that he's just a cool fucking dude, man, you know? So anyway, if you haven't guessed it already, we're talking about Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Do I need to explain the plot? It is a story about Bill and Ted. They are aspiring musicians who want to... Um, form a band. They're high school seniors. Uh, They're sort of lackeys in school. They're not doing well. Ted is being threatened by his father to be sent to military school unless he uh, because he's flunking out of school, both Bill and Ted get told by their teacher, Mr. Ryan, that they're flunking out of history. And if they flunk history, then they're going to uh, be fucked in their school, obviously. Um, so they have, they're in a dire situation. They have to come up with a way to ace this report, which is the next day. And all of a sudden, they're at the Quickie Mart asking it's random Circle people. K. They're at the oh, Circle, Circle K. K. Sorry, Circle strange K. strange things are afoot at the Circle K. That's right, that's right. So they're, they're at Circle K, and they're asking random strangers historical questions, and all of a sudden, out of the sky, George Carlin comes with a um, telephone booth. 
And he lands there and introduces them to the adventure of a lifetime where they will get to go back into history and actually meet and encounter these historical figures. They do so. They encounter Socrates, a.k.a. Socrates, Billy the Kid. They get Abraham Lincoln, Genghis they get Khan, beef oven. Jo- Joan of Arc, Beethoven, as in Beethoven, Beethoven. Uh, they Genghis get Khan. Genghis Khan. Uh, and then I'm missing one. Oh, and Sigmund Freud. Or Sigmund, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> Sigmund Freud. So they go in time. They get all these dudes. They bring them back into modern-day San Dimas, which is San Dimas, California. If you guys don't know where that is, it's north northeast of Los Angeles. It's very hot and dry. And Oh, and they have Napoleon, too. I forgot because Napoleon oh, the first Napoleon. guy Of course, Napoleon. Napoleon. Who goes um, to Waterloo. Which Waterloo is a water park, which is actually Raging Waters in San Dimas. It's like the big uh, water park in Southern California. Um, there was wild rivers, water, and raging waters. And then they added a Hurricane Harbor at, at Six Flags Magic Mountain. But this is my old stomping ground. So, like, I love this movie because it also reminds me a little bit of home. It's a little bit outside of my home, but kind of homish. Um, so then, obviously, the historical people, they come back to present-day San Dimas and uh, they get into like these weird fish out of water scenarios where they go to the mall and they sort of all embrace something that is similar to what they would do uh, maybe in their historical time period. Like Genghis Khan dresses up in football gear and he changes his club for a bat and he starts beating the shit out of a mannequin, <laughs> which is my favorite scene in the movie. Oh my I God, laugh that so hard. Of them at the mall is so Dude, that's my fucking favorite. amazing. I laugh so hard. Joan of Arc uh, takes up aerobics and she starts like getting crazy with her aggression and leading also, this like jazzercise thing. In a double team that nobody ever saw happening, Socrates and Billy the Kid <laughs> team up Pick up on to women. try and hit on women in the mall. <laughs> and it's working until the geek Sigmund Freud comes along uh, and that starts psychoanalyzing. Siggy. <laughs> Siggy. He starts psychoanalyzing these women. Um, and, uh, oh, it's fucking, it's brilliant. Beethoven's okay, on so, the keyboards. So that's like surface level stuff. And then there's sort of like the, 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 the I guess the B plot, which is that Bill and Ted, they meet these princesses and they fall in love with these princesses in medieval England and like 14th century, 15th century England. And then, um, but more importantly than that, the reason that they were given this time machine was that George Carlin is actually from 700 years in the future. And he actually sets this up at the very beginning. And he needs to um, go back in time to help these young boys pass their history exam and it, so that they can then be, I guess, directed on this path because one day their music, uh, as they form this band, when they meet the princesses, because the princesses end up becoming part of the band, they need to form this band because this band will end up saving the world because their music will save the world. So uh, there's also a brief little sequence where they go into the future and they meet these like future historical figures and they like see this world that has been constructed and created because of their heroics through their music gift. Um, where these people basically like worship them. They call them the great ones. <laughs> and and um, yeah, so that's the story of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. <laughs> um. Oh, and, and then of course they come back to San Dimas with their historical figures. They make it to the report at the very last minute and they put on basically a rock show version of their history report that's part education, part performance, part psycho- psychoanalysis and catharsis. And um, it's fucking amazing. And of course they get A pluses on their exam. And they get the princesses at the end, and uh, they form and, their band. And George Carlin assures yeah. George, us that they get better George playing their instruments. <laughs> yeah, he assures us that they get good. <laughs> oh. Okay. Start off with the important thing. I have a quibble with the time travel element of this film. Yes. 
Okay, so George Carlin has to travel back 700 years into the past because there's a danger of them not passing their history class. But in theory, wouldn't they have already passed their history class because the future exists? Like, yeah, what, what but, he has to, but he has to... But he has to go back in time because he had already gone it's, back it's in not time like, previously. It's not like time is like two spaces that are happening continuously. It's like it's like it's it's like it's acting like time is like two different parallel points that are happening, uh, and that he has to go affect one to make the other one happen. But that's not how that works. Like. In theory, they should have already done it. So how would it? How? Why is it that he has to go back? It's like, it's. it's like, I feel like I need like no, no, a piece here's of the paper thing. to here's explain this did properly. They, well, yeah. Well, did did they pass the exam without ever without any intervention? No, because they only pass the exam because they have the time machine to go back in time. But then why does Therefore, George Carlin have to go George back at Carlin, that moment at that in time and year period? The time has happened. There's there's a danger they might not pass it, as if they're in another destination where they have to go to to help to to get them to do it. Yes, so time is working in a loop here, and so actually, some people have even said that Bill and Ted's is one of the better uh, time travel films because at least it's consistent with the idea that. Um, it's 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 in a loop. It's always happening. So you're always going back in time. Every time this new time sequence, uh, let's say point. Wait, hold on, real quick. I know you want to say something. But let me just finish this real quick. So let's start from point zero. That's the present day of Bill and Ted. Fast forward seven hundred years chronologically into the future. At that point, George Carlin has to go back in time to point zero to make sure that they go back in time. That that Bill and Ted go back in time to get their historical figures to pass. Um, the uh, to pass their report. So then that means that every single time that the new Bill and Ted get to that 700-year mark or that, that time gets to that 700-year mark, George Carlin is always sent back in time. So it's working in a circular loop. So it's always happening and, uh, and it happens consistently, which is why when Bill and Ted are standing at the Circle K, the other Bill and Ted's come to them because – this process is always endlessly repeating. But I don't get it. So why – but why that moment? Why not like – why can't George Carlin go like the day before or the day after? I mean because well, in theory because they that already was the set moment. up to this idea that they can just go and do things in the, in the future by taking the time machine back to the past to set up things to happen in the present. Yeah, but then that means that those timelines as well, like them hiding the tape recorder and hiding the keys and stuff like that, those are on the same loop. Uh, those are on a, a, a same loop as well, which means, again, in time zero, then you have time zero, which we'll say is the circle K, and then we'll have zero, one, zero, two, zero, three. So let's say zero, five is when they're at the police station and all those things, they start realizing, oh, we can just come back in time. we got to remind ourselves. That means that each Bill and Ted that goes through that sequence of starting from time zero onward will always be experiencing that same loop, going back and repeating the same thing. It's an endless process of, uh, of circular time travel that's always going to be taking place. Okay, I feel like... <laughs> We're not going to resolve this. So <laughs> so let's get on to the important things. So was – how accurate do you feel this representation of Socrates was? Oh, God, of Socrates. Uh, hey, man, like it's Did pretty Socrates accurate, just, I guess. Was Socrates, <laughs> like Ozzy Osbourne, accused many times of corrupting the young? Uh, he was, actually. There you go. Um, that's why he was put to death. Um 
uh, or he was given the option, uh, actually, but he uh, that's why he drank the hemlock, is he was accused on trial of corrupting the youth of Athens, and so he was killed. Now, the weird thing is, is that he does pick up English rather quickly, doesn't he? <laughs> he doesn't, like, ever speak that much English, because, like, even, like, during the presentation, like, Ted has to help him out with, like, sign language. He loves But he's able to understand baseball. it pretty quickly. He understands it pretty quickly, though. Okay, okay, that's that's actually a fair point. He does understand English because, like, <laughs> literally, they show up and they're like, "All we are is dust in the wind." <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I, I uh. look. Okay, so basically, like, I have like a very long history with this movie in the sense that I it was one of those ones that they played on like Comedy Central a lot. So okay. I watched this film on like TV with commercial breaks a lot in the it, in the UK. Oh no, in the U.S. And I think, oh, okay. and so I mean, I've, I've I probably watched this film for the first time when I was like eleven, twelve, and then pretty much have consistently watched it a lot over the course of you know, yes, you know, same. And like, and to the point where it is like, I do remember like an awful lot of the dialogue of this film, and it's it's interesting too because again, this was because I think like I put my well, last time I watched it was with Alex. And I was kind of watching it. Isn't this fun, you know, goofy, silly movie? And then, you know, this time I was kind of like I was watching it with, like, my my critical uh, podcast hat on. And I was like, you know what? There's a real beauty in what they do with Bill and Ted as characters. <laughs> because they're not your typical dumb surfer characters. They're not stoners. There's they have their own weird kind of idiosyncratic language, which is kind of fascinating. Like the whole thing <laughs> of like, you know, be excellent to each other. Like, again, that's it's it's not like actual typical California speak. It is like their own kind of weird dialogue. Yeah. When when uh, when Ted gets when Bill thinks that Ted gets stabbed, that's my favorite. He's like bogus heinous most non-triumphant <laughs> most non-triumphant <laughs> yeah no it is and i i love the earnestness that, yeah. that that is the point there is like you were talking about previously with paddington too there is no cynicism there's nothing meta there's no tongue-in-cheek i mean this is just pure sincerity they are sincerely kind of just these High school doofuses. Well, they're also really you know? sweet and innocent, and it's like, oh even, yeah, even like you know, it's not they're not like broish in any kind of a way either. No. It's like, it's like you know, again when it's like they meet the princesses, it's like, oh my god, they're like really I'm beautiful in love, dude. girls. I'm in love, dude. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's like, I'm in love, dude. And then like when Ted first tells him, he's like, give my love to the princesses. It's like give my love to them. It's not like. Dude, we're gonna bang. Yeah. It's just straight up. In it, there's an them. innocence. Well, <laughs> also, is, it's like again though too though. It's like this. There's a beautiful earnestness too, and they're like in their simple childishness. So it's like if you guys are us, then what number are we thinking of right now? <laughs> Sixty nine, dude. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, so like, okay, so let's 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 go into this too because okay. so you, you have you have two actors you have Keanu Reeves who's obviously gone on to become you know a huge movie star and you have Alex Winter who kind of never happened. He's and a inter- documentary filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. And the inter- and also seems like a really nice guy if you ever like seen like interviews with him generally. Yeah, I have lots. Yeah, um, yeah. And he's like, and you know, one of these people who like really impressively too doesn't seem to be bitter. Doesn't seem like he let like Hollywood chew him up or anything like that. And you know, yeah. And you know, and I I I do love the idea that he's still friends with Keanu Reeves. Like that seems like that that would 
that 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 just seems great and <laughs> and and of course like he's one of these guys too who like uh you know when i watch when we watch the documentary on canon films he's in that like he yep. also um you know he's he's was in like the lost boys and i think like probably at this time he was kind of the slightly bigger name because he was in a bunch mm. of kind of like 80s stuff and keanu reeves as far as i'm aware up to this point had only been in like young blood i don't know really what else where he mm. gives possibly the worst french canadian accent ever committed mm. to film keanu reeves should never do accents um no. <laughs> but like but like there's like i i don't know quite because i think the thing that's really fascinating is this performance has followed keanu reeves around his entire career and yep. everybody kind of has this idea of him that he is this kind of doofus that he is <laughs> Uh, that he is Ted. But, like, the funny thing is, like, I remember, like, reading this um, premiere did a whole piece on him where they got all of these people to, like, um, write, like, profiles on him. And, talk, you know, sort of like, so they had, like, Francis Ford Coppola, um, Alex Winter, a lot of, like, you know, quite big names, too, sort of, like, writing and sort of, like, saying what their experiences with Keanu Reeves were and everything. It was very sort of, you got the feeling that he was very liked by all of these people. But the really interesting thing, I thought, was Francis Ford Coppola, who says... It's really weird that people think he's stupid because, mm. like, he's a dude who really loves, like, reading about philosophy. He's got, like, you know, he's got a real keen sort of academic intellect and a real interest in things. But he's also got this withdrawn quality, which I think people read mm. as stupid. Like, mm. but it's like, but it, I mean, you know, one of the reasons why he is the lead in the matrix was because basically when the Wachowski brothers were, well, sorry, the Wachowski brothers at the time, obviously now the Wachowski sisters, I guess. Wachowski sisters. Uh, yeah. yeah. They, um, you know, they, they basically were like, okay, here's the script. Here's a bunch of philosophy books on top of that, that you need to read to get the vibe of the script. And mm. Keanu Reeves had like already read him. Like he was, he was, mm. you know, he is a guy who's, I mean, he made a documentary all about the conversion from digital to, to film. He made a film about Tai Chi because he was interested in Tai Chi, you know, yeah. it, it's like, he's a guy, he's kind of a guy who's like intellectually curious, but the per this performance is so convincing that this, <laughs> yeah, has, is this is his persona. Yeah. Can you think of any other actor where that has happened? I I'm sure there are others. Well, I mean, but, you know, and I'm not talking about getting typecast. Yeah. Like, th this is beyond typecast. This is literally where people think that that he just kind of is this Ted dude. Well, that was the thing that – because that was the joke for a long time was, oh, well, Keanu Reeves was just playing himself in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which – it's like when you actually like see him being interviewed, he's really not like he's like no. he comes over very intelligently. And actually, what is, I like there was this meme that was going around years ago. I don't know if you remember it called Sad Keanu, which is like him on a bench. Somebody take a picture bench? of him on yeah, a bench in eating New a York. sandwich. And yeah. he looks so forlorn. It was like yeah. this weird thing of like this man <laughs> having an existential crisis while eating a sandwich. And, and I remember somebody in an interview asking him about it. And he was like, oh, yeah, no, I think it's really cool. Like people taking like images and kind of doing their own thing with it and finding new ways to like make art and everything. And you're kind of like, again, that's like a really cool response. Whereas like you can imagine like someone like Sean Penn being, oh, they're fucking dicks. Follow me around. Take a picture. Fuck them or something like that. But Keanu's yeah. just like, oh, yeah, no, I think it's cool. 
Or even someone being defensive and trying to explain, oh, no, I was just having like a, a sandwich and I was just in deep thought or something. The fact that he was secure enough in himself and intelligent enough to kind of be like, ah, it's kind of interesting, you know, that is something kind of cool and I dig that. It does. It shows a strength about yeah. him that you wouldn't find in somebody that is <laughs> dumb and kind of the doofus that Ted was or it, it supposedly is. So here's an interesting question. What do you see? Do you see there being any real obvious character differences between Bill and Ted? Are they kind of one unit as a sort of setup, or do they have individual character traits? Because looking at it, mm. I actually think you could switch their dialogue for the most part, and it wouldn't really make much of a difference. I think they are mm. actually a sort of homogenous two-person thing. I don't think they're like <laughs> I don't think I don't think they actually have individual character traits beyond a few elements that a few plot elements like plot Ted's elements, being yeah. sent to military school and Bill has a, a MILF hot, for hot a mom for stepmom. But like you could switch those dynamics around. It wouldn't change. And even there's kind of a joke in the sequel where um where Alex's stepmom divorces I'm sorry, Bill's stepmom divorces Bill's dad and marries Ted's dad. <laughs> um Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I uh I no, I think you, you, you're right. They sort of are a two headed monster. They're almost in a, a way. single character as a double act. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And I wonder why it works then. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe it's because you're getting like double the fun. It's a fucking double mint commercial or something. I don't know. But no, that's actually a really good point. You probably could. Um, I mean, obviously, each actor has his or her or has has his own, um, you know, idiosyncratic or idiosyncrasies that would kind of distinguish them. But in terms of the writing, yeah, I think you're right, actually. Well, and here's the thing, though, too, though, is I think that Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves have such great chemistry playing Excellent. these characters that they are just so fucking watchable. And that's the thing that I was yeah. thinking about, because there's so many elements to this movie that are super dumb, super cheesy, super ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm not, this is this was not as well crafted a film as, say, something like Paddington was, where it's like there's genuinely great filmmaking you're watching going on. This is a very much a kind of like by the numbers piece of direction. But those two characters are so well realized and so likable that it carries you through that because they're so fucking watchable. Absolutely. And there's something, you know, obviously I got to talk about the acting. Yeah. There's something so interesting because I don't think people realize how difficult it is to play that kind of part without it going over the top. Or if it does go over the top, that it still fits the tone of the scene. And I actually paid a lot of attention as I was watching it last night, especially Alex Winter. I was really impressed with him. Yeah. He's actually he's he's always in in the scene. Um, he's always on tone, and the two of them together are excellent. But I was actually really impressed, kind of watching the craft. That's not an easy thing to do. I think people are like, "Oh, I could just be like surfer dude on camera." You can. But the way that they did it actually was really quite well, subtle and nice. We've also all seen nice. Bad Surfer Dude as well. Like you watch, like watch, right. like you know, 
Airborne from 1995. Then you can Don't see you talk like, shit. Do not talk shit on Airborne. <laughs> I fucking love that movie. Jack Jack Black is in that movie. I think that might be Jack Black's first like feature film. No, I no, no. Fucking... Jack Black's in the Neverending Story three before that. No, 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 dude. Air. Oh, he's in before that. Okay, yeah. but he's in Airborne. He's, he's one of the Airborne. bad guys. He's one of the bullies, and they do Devil's Backbone, and they fucking don't yeah, you like, dare talk shit on Airborne. Airborne is is kind of bad. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he's, he's not good. <laughs> No, I'm but not, I fucking okay, love that movie. Shit on Airborne, okay? Like I enjoyed Airborne as as a person who watched the Disney Channel at a certain time in my life. I'm not gonna rip on Airborne. Fuck it, that's my next movie choice. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, anyway, um, but okay, but also you then have that dynamic. Yeah, yeah so we've seen bad, and then we've seen good surfer yeah. dude. Like Spicoli is is oh, a yeah, really Spicoli's good actually, surfer dude. Funnily enough, bringing up Sean Penn, you know, earlier. Yeah, I know, right? Spicoli actually again is a example of a good surfer dude a well-played surfer very good dude. but yeah it's interesting too because i remember listening to somebody talk about the brilliance of john travolta's performance in um, saturday night fever saturday night fever is a film that i adore i fucking love saturday night fever and i do think part of it is that john travolta hits on this perfect level of stupidity with the character mm. is that the character is stupid but he's not like but there's but you feel like he wants to be smarter. Like he, he doesn't like the fact that he's stupid and he's kind of frustrated by it. And there's like, there's beautiful textures into how that's played. And I think like, again, you look at say, even again, take someone like Channing Tatum in 21 jump street. Again, there's, there's levels to how that stupidity is played. Mm. And again, and I feel with um, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, they're not just, they're not flat. They're not just like doing a dumb impression of a Californian guy. There's dimensions to like the way they talk to each other and the way they interact with each other that isn't just them doing bold face dumb surfer guy. They have right. in te- they have an interior di- they have a they have a dynamic going with each other, you know, in terms of their emotional range. Now, I don't I think the characters are actually interchangeable, but I think there's still an emotional range at all times through those characters, and that's kind of why you care because mm. they're not just dumb idiots. They're guys who have wants and desires even if they don't necessarily always know how to articulate themselves yeah no i agree and i think it really comes down to sincerity and that's one of the hardest things to do as an actor is to be sincere in the moment and to to quote unquote play dumb is is very often insincere and so you almost have to kind of god there's a way that you just have to kind of embody that 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 doofusness for lack of a better word you know and i they they really do kind of a wonderful job and Fuck, man. I It was funny because I hadn't seen this movie in a few years, like quite a few years, but I watched this so much as a child. And it was the same thing as you. Like, I, I knew a lot of the lines. And it was weird. It was one of those things where it had seeped into my unconscious to the point where, like, the way that they said a line, I think, is even ways that I will speak today. And yeah. I'm trying to remember what they were, but they were they would say something and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, when I'm thinking about a certain subject, I say it in that way. Oh, like Abraham Lincoln, when he's spelling his name, that's L-I-N-C. O L N. When I when I write out Lincoln, I say that in my head, bro. I say that in my head. Like that's so fucking but it, weird. It, it that- is funny how much too. Like if somebody says something like if somebody says something about George Washington, my immediate thought is dude on the dollar bill. <laughs> yeah, dude. Dude, on the didn't he have bill. a wooden leg and chase Moby Dick? <laughs> that's Captain Ahab, man. <laughs> no, he says wooden teeth wooden and chase te- Captain. Or Moby oh Dick. yeah, does he have wooden he, teeth? He confuses Chase him. Moby Dick. 
<laughs> yeah. Captain Ahab. Uh, dude, that's Captain Ahab, bro. Oh, oh and then the bit where he goes like, oh, dude, dude, remember he was at the Hall of Presidents. Oh, yeah, what did he say? Welcome, Welcome to the Hall to of the Presidents. Hall of Presidents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things I did think about is how amazing would it be to come up with a band name from the writing of this? Like, you could call yourself, like, almost anything. Like, I was thinking, like, medieval dickwad. Like, you know, when, when Ted gets killed, he's like, you killed Ted, you medieval dickwad. And he chases after him. Like, that would be a cool name for a band. There's so many possibilities for band names that you could actually come up with. Most non-triumphant. I would love to be a band called Most Non-Triumphant. Like, uh, come on, man. But okay, Andy, the funny thing, too, is that you have, like, George Carlin, who, if you think about it, this is a very odd choice for this character because he is playing it as deadpan Straight, as you could possibly yeah. imagine. And, like, I've seen – I saw George Carlin actually live at, a, at, oh, an, wow. at an Indian casino in New Mexico. And I will say, you know – if you've ever seen a George Carlin, he's not he's not a deadpan guy. He is no. an angry fucking man. That was his whole <laughs> thing. His whole thing was like, here's another group of people that need to be sterilized with a rusty nail. That That's George Carlin. This yep. kind of like really kind of just deadpan like, yes, this this is going to be most excellent. You know, it, it's well, and not- there's there's kind of a sweetness about him, yeah. too, is that he actually really does care for the great ones he wants them to succeed well and then also it's like that moment too when they like end up back at the circle k on the second go and like they talk to bill and ted they're kind of like you guys are going to go on a most excellent adventure once they get done with that (laughs) whole thing and keanu reeves just goes rufus in this kind of really (laughs) like he hadn't noticed him there and then it's just suddenly like and seems to have forgotten that he was there the first time they were there and he's just really excited to see him again another great band name rufus (laughs) Okay, so if you were going to – so who is your most – who's your favorite out of the historical figures? Oh, this is so hard. I mean I love the Billy the Kid and Socrates relationship so much. Um, See, I find Billy the Kid super distracting because Billy the Kid, not a native New Mexican but became famous in New Mexico. So we kind of claim him. Um So I find it very distracting that this is in no way related. I think even by – the measure of most of the historical figures, Billy the Kid is nothing like Billy the Kid in the sense that they've they've basically said we just need somebody from the Old West and we need to just give him an Old West name. So it's yeah. like so and we need completely to be like a badass divorced from what Billy the Kid was that you're just kind of yeah. – I find that distracting a little bit. No, I'm not even blaming the film on that. I don't have a problem with it really, but it's it's what brings him points down from being one of my favorite ones personally. Yeah. Um I as weird as it sounds so so but they have the biggest part like yeah. both I mean and then Napoleon obviously and and I actually I really love the Napoleon water park scene oh that so scene much. is great though That's also great feeds scene. into the myth that Napoleon was short Napoleon was not short yeah. he was actually above average for his time period I know I was th- I actually thought about that when I uh, when I was watching that last night I know um, but yeah, I, I like the, I love the, I, I actually, I love when he's eating the ice cream too, the, oh the, the Ziggy Piggy and he's like fighting the little 12 year old girl for the last scoop of ice cream. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just sitting there going like, you know, with the guys too, who are like doing the, you know, kind of like doing the, like the Ziggy Piggy, like, yeah. like, like song. <laughs> I'm just like, if I fucking worked with you guys, I'd fucking hate you because you are like relishing <laughs> this way too much. I know. Well, I will think – I do think it's funny. Before I go into my favorite real quick, it's also funny how well all of these historical figures 
transition to like oh, yeah. first of all being kidnapped second of all <laughs> they learn english uh, or they can at least understand english third they're all down with like getting in line and presenting at this uh that the history presentation and then they also are cool with like just kind of going to the mall and hanging out like they do quite well being ripped from their <laughs> worlds and placed into a new world genghis khan surprisingly doesn't kill anyone he only okay he murders a mannequin and that's he as does. far as it goes I, I mean, I laughed out loud a couple of times in this, but when he puts on that, the football pads and the oh. helmet and picks up the bat and beats up that mannequin, I laughed so hard, man. And I don't know why. Like, it, it, there's nothing smart about it. There's nothing. It, it's just funny physical comedy for whatever I, I will say Joan of Arc, it makes some sense with because basically she's praying and we all know. Joan of Arc, you know, she she claimed to hear voices. You know, well, she claimed that yeah, the, that that Michael or that the arch, archangel uh, Michael visited her and shit so like that. Two, so if like if a bunch of guys showed up in a magic phone booth and were just like, come with us, I come feel like us. Joan of yeah. Arc would probably be like, like Whoa. God's trying to show me some shit. I just got to go yeah. along with this. So Joan of Arc makes sense. Sigmund Freud, I feel <laughs> like, would not go along with this quite as readily. Yeah, he gets roped, first of all. Like, oh, yeah, literally, he gets point. roped by Billy the Kid. But then he's kind of cool. Like, he's hanging out with So Crates and Billy the Kid and being getting a, a corn dog. He's, he's being a fucking cock block, is what Sigmund Freud is being. <laughs> he is. He's a geek. I love it. They call him, the girls, they're like, you're such a geek. And he's like, what is a geek? Actually, that's <laughs> the other thing to take. So you, you say the historical figures are taking this at face value. The... Other people are taking this at face value because, <laughs> like, because, like, the girls kind of seem a bit into this elderly man in a toga and this guy <laughs> dressed as a cowboy. Like, they're just kind in of all. accepting this. And, like, so the guy at the piano store is like, oh, there's a guy who's dressed as Beethoven sitting there. I'm not going to comment on this. I'm just going to try and sell you a keyboard. Yeah. Yeah, and then not only that, but Billy the Kid fires off his gun in the mall, and he fires off his gun in the the auditorium when they're giving a presentation, and no cops really show up and arrest him for firing a weapon. Like it's kind of like, eh, it's, it's he's he's Billy the Kid, man. That's I, cool. And again, too, like they show up in the magic phone booth in uh in Bill's <laughs> back garden. His his uh his stepmom. Yeah is yeah. like gardening he's like okay this is uh the beef oven uh you know joan arc uh you know bill the kid and um abraham lincoln yeah <laughs> she's just go, and she's just kind of like oh hi there's snacks in the fridge or there's drinks in the fridge i know i, I will say she kind of seems like a cool stepmom like you know uh, yeah you know, sexiness aside, she actually seems like she's, she she does some shit. Like she's always trying to give people snacks. She's always trying, she's she's giving them rides everywhere. Like she's rides. not like she's not an evil. She's she seems quite nice. Again, there's no real villain. The only villain is actually my old acting coach, Hal Landon Jr., Ted's dad. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's my oh, old acting wow. coach. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, for years he was the uh, the kind of he ran the South Coast Repertory in Orange County, and he was my acting coach for a long time. Um, but uh, yeah, so Hal Landon Jr., Ted's dad, is really the only like he's like the only proper antagonist, mm. right? Except for like the security mall, but he's really the guy that even runs the cops because he's like the I don't know the head sheriff or whatever the fuck he is. So, but everybody else is kind of good. I mean, I guess Mr. Ryan kind of. He he's an he's an opposition figure, but 
even him, he's just doing his job as a teacher, right? Um, he's there to kind of create the sort of inciting event so that they can go on their adventure. Yeah, Whereas, I, just, I love that bit least, where he's like, and all you've learned is that Julius Caesar was a salad dressing man. <laughs> salad dressing dude. Salad dressing dude, that was it. <laughs> the salad dressing dude. That'd be another great name for a band. Salad dressing dude. <laughs> I'm telling you, this movie's filled with uh, perfect names. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, dude, it was so funny. I actually had a little bit of trepidation before I watched it because I was nervous as, you know, a man in his 30s who hadn't seen this in about 10 years plus but who loved this movie so much. And you know how your your excitement as a child can bam up a film and then it yeah, really disappoints yeah. you when you're older and we've experienced it on this podcast. Yeah. And I watched it, bro. I think I had so much enjoyment actually watching it last night. It like – it actually made me sleep well. I had like a wonderful morning. It actually put me in such like an amazing mood, which is so strange. Yeah. Um, I fucking – I know, man. It was great. Well, that and then, of course, I watched YouTube videos of Journey's new lead singer, the dude from the Philippines. Yeah, and yeah, I got yeah. me teary-eyed. I got me teary-eyed. So I was like – I was all up in uh, some classic rock shit last night, I what? guess. But yeah, man, it, it, it was just such a – it was actually a great viewing experience, and I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed watching it again. I, I also – I had a – you know, when I was Wikipediaing this film afterwards, I found out something which I, for some reason, had never known before, which is that Joan of Arc is played by one of the members of the Go-Go's. Yeah, she's the uh, – one of the founding members with Belinda Carlisle. She's uh, what the, the guitarist and backing vocals, I think. Which I'm shocked this was not a piece of information that I was ever aware of. Yeah, you know, um, the only reason I knew that was because randomly, like a couple of years ago, I was doing some research on the Go-Go's and I was like, oh, I wonder what who their people are. And so, you know, you look at kind of like their uh, um, the members of the band and then you figure out who the fuck they are. And I saw that and I was like, no shit. It and then been, I looked and I was like, wow. It might have been because like the Go-Go's are the sort of band that when I was in my teens, I would have been really embarrassed to admit that I liked and now, yeah. like, now, now I'm being like, yeah, like, I, I fucking love that shit. But, you know, it's yeah, like, come on, man. <laughs> well, it's like, it's like, I think there's a thing, too, a little bit where, like, I'm so taken by the aesthetic of an all girl band that it's like, it, it almost like, it's like why I ended up, like, owning, like, two albums by the Donnas. Not because they were, I was like, just any gonna good. Ask. it was just yeah. because, like, they were an all girl <laughs> band and that seemed so cool that I was just like, I'll, yeah. fuck it, I'll buy, I'll buy some albums by them. That's also why you love the movie Josie and the Pussycats. That is, that is actually a very good point. That might be why i love that movie, Josie <laughs> and the pussycats but no i'm i mean w- interestingly enough what did you what did you think of the sequel um so i don't remember the sequel much i remember i've seen it a handful of times but i actually kind of want to watch it now because i don't remember it at all i do remember being disappointed though i think the problem with the sequel is i actually like the sequel it's not as good as the original but one of the problems actually the thing i appreciate with the sequel is that it doesn't try to redo the time thing it tries to go in a different direction with it and i like that and then it has this fun with the fact that it basically has uh, plays on um, the seventh seal and has them sort of battling death uh, to be. Yeah, I, I for some reason, I also remember that I really liked the Grim Reaper, though. Oh, like, yeah. He's played like... by um, William Sadler. Who's William Sadler? Oh, you know, you'd recognize him. He's, yeah, I know that name. He's in like the Shawshank Redemption. He's in like a lot of Frank Darabont's movies. He's like, he's the villain in um, Die Hard 2. Um, I I don't really... Uh, I, and also, the problem is I have the, the name Craig Sadler in my name, who's I think a professional golfer who's like a chubby dude with a mustache. So I've got that picture in my head. Um, um, 
Yeah, no, I, I, but I, I do remember being disappointed, but again, I don't really remember. I just remember, I mean, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I watched on repeat, man. Whereas Bogus Journey, I saw a handful of times. Um, and it was just because I loved Bill and Ted so much as characters. But I don't, I don't really remember the film as much. And it's, it's kind of funny, the weird little personalities that they infuse them with is that, you know, like we said, like Sigmund Freud's kind of a dork. Billy, uh, Billy the Kid and Socrates end up becoming buddies. You know, Genghis Khan is just this almost like feral, insane person. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you know, Napoleon is just an asshole. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and I just also, again, I love, I love like their presentation. So like you have like Napoleon going over how like Waterloo is going to work and uh, Ted just going like, I don't think it's going to work. And then Napoleon just <laughs> turns over the board and gets angry about it. <laughs> I like, yeah. And then, uh, oh, and then uh, Genghis Khan like doing like a demonstration and he's like, like he really likes Twinkies because the awesome sugar rush it gives him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I will say this too. Um, I experienced many reports that were very thin in their intellectual depth, but that were high in their performativity. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't always score that well. So I was trying to think as a teacher, like obviously for presentation, their report is off the charts. And then I was trying to think how much information was given. There was some information given. It was sprinkled in there, but I wonder if it was enough to really give them the A+. Plus. Yeah, but dude, did you see those other reports, man? Those other <laughs> reports were shitty as fuck. Not to mention, it is such a bullshit question. What would they make of San Dimas? Who fucking came up with that as a fucking essay question? He's a football player, man. Come on. No, but I'm saying, like, the actual essay question is terrible. And then you got that girl who's kind of like... Like, like, oh, Mary Antoinette today might say, let them eat fast food. I'm like, fuck you. That's a, that's a fucking terrible essay. At least she was trying to talk about something relatively substantial, though. Before I'm just that. She's saying about, like, it's inequality a fucking bullshit and... essay question to begin <laughs> with. So fuck the teacher for that one. But one of the most famous lines from the movie is actually not uttered by Bill and Ted, but by, uttered by the other football player who closes out his report to dead silence and he says San Dimas High School Football Rules is that like a famous <laughs> line oh yeah dude there's a famous punk song called San Dimas High School Football Rules by the Ataris um, because of it it was a really well known punk song that was one of my favorite songs ever when I was like 15, 16 years old I remember driving around in my Camaro my first car that I had blasting San Dimas High School Football Rules but um, yeah man uh, great oh fuck um, I love this movie well, so here's, much. here's the question though <laughs> Would yeah. you be upset to find out that this film was mostly shot in Phoenix, Arizona? Nah, man, that's fine with me. It's all good. They look the same. San just, Dimas it, looks it, like fucking Arizona. Not, though apparently, like, they had, like, some kind of um, big uh, honoring of the film at, like, the 50th anniversary of, like, San Dimas' incorporation, incorporation as a city. I bet they did. I mean... I would have never even – I bet you there are many people in this world that don't even know what the city of San Dimas is except through Bill and Ted's. It's not like a, a well-known suburb of Los Angeles. The reason that I knew about it growing up was just because the water park, Raging Waters. That's it. I would have never fucking – and I didn't even know that it was in the city of San Dimas until I put that together through the movie. <laughs> but, I'd, I, but, I'd, but I'd been to the water park. So I don't know, man. I got, I got one more question for you, Austin. Okay. Do you wish that they'd kind of bring those like those those eighties kind of like 
men's uh, sort of midriff showing tops back. <laughs> was like, it Bill Wears? I'm thinking like there was kind of a thing in the 80s uh, of like these kind of like belly tops where you could see like dudes midriffs yeah. that, uh, that I got to say Alex Winter is rocking pretty fucking solid right there. Yeah, like man's got some ab game. I mean, I will say this. Next year for Halloween, I'm going as Bill. That's that's all I'm saying. Who's going like, to be your Ted? Uh, you got the job if you want it, brother. Well, I, you could be in Australia, though. Well, you can come with me. I, I got to go to Australia just to dress up as Ted. <laughs> yeah, and then Alex can be your princess, man. Aww. My princess with a terrible English accent. She'll have to put on a terrible <laughs> English accent to do it convincingly. I know, I know. Um... Okay, I got two questions, or I got two things that I wanted to say. One, apparently this film was shot in, uh, like, 88, and then it was put on the shelf for, like, almost two years. And they didn't think it was going to go anywhere. They thought it was never going to see the light of day. But um, Alex Winter was talking about this in an interview that I recently watched, which I thought was really interesting because it it does make sense. I mean, you look at this film and you're kind of like, oh, my God, is this film ever going to do anything? And then it does get released and it becomes this huge fucking kind of like cult hit. I mean, I don't know. Did it make money at the box office? I think it got pretty slated reviews-wise, but it must have done well at the box office because they literally brought out a movie two years later and they had a cartoon series. Did you ever watch like the Bill and Ted cartoon series? Dude, why does that sound? I think I did a little bit. Because that, that was actually so the first familiar. time I ever experienced Bill and Ted was when I was super little, when I was like four or five, and I saw like an episode. I only ever saw one episode of like the Bill and Ted cartoon series. I think it only lasted for like one season. So it's did like they do the episodes. voices? Yeah, they did. Like Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter and George Carlin all actually did the voices in it. And then about five years later, they did a live action Bill and Ted TV show that only lasted seven episodes where Bill Bill and Ted um, and uh, Rufus were all played by different actors. Oh, yeah. See, that's not going to work. Well, that's here's not the second thing. That's the thing. I watched a clip of it out of curiosity. I'm like, this just feels off because it feels like people doing an impression of those characters and it doesn't feel right. Yeah. The chemistry's off. Yeah. No, you got to have the original cast, which leads me to my second point. Bill and Ted save the music. There's a script. Yeah, they're just trying to get for a long time. They're just trying to get financing. They're just trying to get off the ground. They've got a script. They like it. Keanu Reeves has even talked about what the plot would be sort of on the Graham Norton show. Uh, They've been talking about getting it off the ground, but Bill and Ted's three, it even has an official IMDb page, but Bill and Ted's three has been in the works, and it's Bill and Ted in their 50s doing their thing, man. I don't know if it's just a bit sad, though, if you, like, see them in their 50s. Like, it's like... Because even, like, the weird thing is, there's a real charm about them as these kind of kind of slightly lame high school... and high school seniors and the thing that's interesting is actually apparently the original script they were more like kind of like dorky metal guys and then like when they cast Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves they kind of had to change the vibe of them a bit because they didn't really suit that um but like but even like when you watch Bogus Journey and the whole thing is like they've left high school they've got shitty jobs they're living in a shitty apartment and like the princesses are like why the fuck aren't we? This isn't. Why the fuck did we leave a giant castle in England and now we're living in this shitty apartment? Like, like what? You know what? 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 Get you need guys need to get your shit together. I mean, it's a little bit depressing. That's kind of again one of the things that's a little bit depressing about the sequel. I don't know, man. I don't know whether like I want to see Bill and Ted in their fifties. Also, in theory, shouldn't they have already like formed Wild Stallions and created music that's going to save, save the, the world? world by that point? 
Yeah, I, yeah. So I don't know. Well, at what point in their life did they do it? Maybe they don't do it until they're in their forties well, or that something bit like that. Where he has the Wild Stallions album cover, you know, and they're doing the 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 sort of like the the big the circular stroke. motion yeah. with the guitars. They they at that point they still look like young Bill and Ted. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know all the details of the story. I've only because first of all, Alex Winter was super hush hush about yeah. it for every interview ever, and then Keanu Reeves kind of spilled some of the beans on Graham Norton. I think uh, it was actually this year, uh, in like in February or earlier this year, he did it. So I don't know if the story will ever get made. I don't really know all the details and the ins and outs, but it has something to do with them needing to make this song to save the universe. Am um, I? Am I crazy though? In the sense that I kind of think that even though this film reads 80s in so many ways, it's also kind of timeless. I mean, I think it's absolutely timeless. I actually – so what movie did we watch where we were like, oh my god, this movie is 80s? Or we, were, we watched Josie and the Pussycats. We're like, oh my god, this is the year 2000 or yeah, whatever yeah. it was, right? This movie didn't – I was actually thinking that when I was watching it. I'm like, it, I don't feel – extremely 80s yeah. when I watch this, except for some of the hairstyles and the fashion. But there's something, yeah, there is something timeless about it, which is quite interesting. You know, I mean, obviously there are no cell phones and cars are going to be dated. And like I said, everybody would be like, stuff, everybody but, would see a phone booth and be like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, exactly. So there are certain things, but it for some reason, it doesn't, it doesn't have the tone of like the 80s. And even though it's like super late 80s, 88, 89 when it was made, it doesn't have like the tone of of a lot yeah. of 80s type of surfer dude films, you know, like a Fast Times, right? So or even like I was thinking of like how off the back of Bill and Ted you have all of these awful like Polly Shore films like Biodome or Encino Man where the characters are just obnoxious and you hate them and they're not like they're not fun and they're not like likable. See, I loved Son-in-Law, but yeah. Did you ever see Son-in-Law? No. Why that's would I watch Polly, Son-in-Law? That's the one where Polly Shore... No, no, I'll in... tell you what. Like, Bradley has literally threatened to come on this podcast and make us watch Biodome. Like, <laughs> he loves Biodome. He's like, he's I... the person in the world that loves Biodome. <laughs> I like Polly Shore's shit, man. Like, uh, Encino Man, um, Son-in-Law, Biodome. Uh, what was it? In the Army Now. <laughs> This is this is this is a whole area of cinema that is completely black to me. <laughs> cool. So All right, we, final. I think we can settle final, on saying yeah. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is a fucking great movie, and it's and an excellent we, adventure, we loved, man. And we we loved we it was it was a most excellent film. It, it was, was a, a most, most triumphant experience. Film. Most triumphant experience. I mean, only thing I'd have to say signing off is that uh, I'm Bill S. Preston Esquire, and I'm Ted Theodore Logan. And we, we are, are Wild Stallions! Keanu Reeves, Alex Winter, Napoleon. We're from history. Billy the Kid. Oh my God! Joan of Arc. Sigmund Freud. Tell me about your mother. You a musician? Beethoven. Genghis Khan! Abraham Lincoln. Party on, dudes! Socrates. George Carlin. We're history. If you guys are really us, what number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! <gasps> Bill and Ted's Excellent! Excellent! Excellent adventure. Party on, dude. 
Okay, so uh, next week we are going to go in a completely different direction. Um, so uh, my choice is something much more dark and foreboding and moody, and uh, and and we're gonna we're gonna finally talk about a filmmaker who I think is probably one of the modern masters, and uh, so I think it's about time that we ended up sort of covering something by him. Um, and Paul uh, Thomas Anderson. No, and you know, uh, there's a TV show which with his markings on it, uh, which oh, sort David of, Lynch. No, uh, which which oh. makes it feel kind of appropriate. Um, and so this is kind David of David Fincher. Yes, this is okay. one of, and this is <laughs> this is one. Of, this is probably my favorite film of his. You know, a film that's all about kind of obsession. Brilliant film, very undervalued in his time, but has become seen as as a masterpiece now. And that is. His 2000, I think it's 2005, 2006 film, Zodiac. Oh my God, man. You know what's crazy? I actually just watched this about two months ago. Uh, um, so I'm actually really, and I fucking loved it. Oh, I'm, yeah. that, that gets me stoked, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going Sick. in a completely different mood, completely different direction next week. Completely different. Yeah, dude. I'm down. All right. So in the meantime... If you're not subscribed to us on iTunes, please do write us a review. Um, you can check out idigthismovie.com. Uh, check out my uh, all my work at kierseywood.com. You can also check out my Instagram, which is uh, Breaking Point Flicks. Um, and yeah, um, hit me up, uh, Austin. Yeah. Um, I keep saying my Twitter, but I've been detaching myself from social media lately. So I'm going to go old school. I'm going to say. Email me if you want to talk to me at ahsmith at gmail.com. Okay, and that's all. <laughs> or, or send me send me a pigeon, a note by pigeon, uh, and my address is in Ireland. <laughs> he, gets, he gets lonely, so he needs someone to talk to. <laughs>